story of psychology, based on the work of Dr. C. George Bore, with your host, Professor Todd. Part One, The Ancients. Christianity started as a tiny Jewish sect in an obscure corner of Palestine, among peasants who were neither literate nor educated. Yet within 300 years, Christianity grew to be the largest religion in the Roman Empire. Today, Christianity is the largest religion in the history of the world. Yet the trajectory between then and now was not straight, nor was it smooth. Much blood was spilled from the beginning of the faith until the present day, and although Christianity would shape the culture of the Roman Empire, the culture of Rome shaped Christianity just as much. So when did Christianity begin? Was it at the beginning of Genesis with Judaism? Did it begin with the birth of Jesus? Or what about at Jesus' death? And yet, none of those events alone would have been enough to set Christianity apart from Judaism. Perhaps the religion of Christianity began with Jesus' resurrection. Even then, had the resurrection occurred and no one known, Christianity would have been stillborn. So we are looking for a singular event, one that was sufficient to start a distinct religion, one separate from Judaism and able to be transmitted from one person to another. Although it is impossible to pinpoint a precise day and time, the religion of Christianity found its origin when the people of Palestine began to believe and tell the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. That day, according to the book of the Acts of the Apostles, began at the day of Pentecost, following Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus of Nazareth is the central figure in the religion of Christianity. Born the son of a common laborer, Jesus of Nazareth likely joined the Jewish movement of the Essenes when he was a young man. Rising above his humble beginnings, Jesus became an itinerant teacher, or rabbi, who preached about a coming kingdom of God that would herald the end of the age of Temple Judaism because of the corruption of the Jewish religious system. At the time of Jesus' public teaching, around 30 AD, Israel had been thoroughly subjugated by the Roman Empire. The Romans had unseated the Jewish king and replaced him with a Roman governor. Any whisperings of rebellion were brutally crushed by the empire. Within one week of Jesus' first and only trip to Jerusalem, he was executed by Rome, most likely for fear that he might be about to start an uprising. In the dark days following his death, Jesus' disciples, later called the apostles, gathered to contemplate what they would do. Their leader was a former Jewish fisherman named Simon Peter. He was among the first to be called by Jesus to follow him. And Peter had come to believe that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, promised by the prophet Isaiah. Peter, along with other of Jesus' disciples and apostles, would later claim to have seen the resurrected Jesus, 
Although all of Jerusalem had seen Jesus die upon a Roman cross, his disciples now claimed that God had vindicated Jesus and his message by returning Jesus to life and then lifting him up on a cloud to heaven. Months later, at the end of the harvest, Jesus' disciples gathered again, this time to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. According to the Acts of the Apostles in the Christian Bible, the disciples were all together in one place. Suddenly, there was a sound like a rush of a violent wind. Divided tongues of fire rested upon each man. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in languages that they previously did not know. Simon Peter then went out among the gathered crowd of fellow Jews, preaching that the whole house of Israel should know that God had made Jesus the Messiah, the Anointed One. Each of his hearers, Peter said, should repent and be baptized, so that their sins might be forgiven. This promise, Peter said, is to you and to your children and to everyone whom God calls to him. The effects of Peter's speech were dramatic and immediate. In that day, 3,000 new converts were added to the numbers of Jesus' followers. This preaching about Jesus and the subsequent conversions marked the birth of the new religion of Christianity. Although still thoroughly Jewish in nature, the Jesus movement also welcomed Gentile converts, causing it to grow rapidly. From the beginning, the movement dedicated itself to the lessons of Jesus, constructing their lives as Jesus would have them live. They would sell their possessions and goods, distributing the money to anyone who had need. They shared everything in common, and they provided for the material needs of one another. Furthermore, they dedicated themselves to carrying the words of Jesus throughout the known world. The proceeds from the sale of possessions were used to finance evangelistic missions that took Jesus' original apostles throughout the Roman Empire. Some stayed nearby in Palestine or Syria. Other apostles set out for Europe and Italy and perhaps even as far away as China and Spain. The success of the Jesus movement created a dilemma for those within the growing sect. Who would be the new leader of the movement? The answer to this question would shape the religion for the next 2,000 years. Since it began in Jerusalem, the first leader, according to tradition, was Simon Peter. For Roman Catholics, Peter's role as an overseer or bishop of the faith, would become the model for the office of the papacy. As the first bishop of Rome, Peter is held to be the first pope. However, there was an earlier leader, a man who may have been the brother of Jesus, the Apostle James. Known as James the Just, or James the Righteous, he was the leader of the Jesus movement in Jerusalem, at the site of Jesus' original teachings. Although some theologians offer differing interpretations, tradition holds that James was the half-brother of Jesus, the youngest son of Joseph and Mary. His title, James the Just, 
comes from his strict adherence to Jewish law, a position that would eventually bring him into conflict with the Apostle Paul. As more and more Gentiles joined the movement, many within the Jesus movement began to question the importance of observing the ceremonial Jewish law. Rather than having new converts become Jewish and observe the rituals of circumcision, many in the Jesus movement began to stress the importance of an inner righteousness, not attached to strict observance of the law. After all, Jesus reserved his harshest criticism for the Pharisees, those who were righteous according to the Jewish law, but who had failed to observe the meaning behind the Jewish scriptures. What mattered, these new believers thought, was observing the Jewish moral code, regardless of whether one followed the ceremonial requirements of Judaism. As those in the Jesus movement began breaking away from the traditional practices of Judaism, their status among Jews and among Romans began to shift. For instance, the followers of the Jesus movement began to practice what had been a small portion of the Passover Seder meal. This eating of bread and drinking of wine became called the Lord's Supper. However, the elements took on a new meaning. They were referred to as the flesh and blood of Jesus. These references to the eating of flesh caused early Christians to be accused of cannibalism by Roman critics. And the references to drinking blood offended traditional Jews for whom the consumption of blood was forbidden by the Torah. Paul of Tarsus. The growing Jesus movement began to experience tensions, not only between themselves and traditional Jews or with the Roman culture, but also within the movement itself. The central figure in this internal squabble was a man named Paul, who fashioned himself as the apostle to the Gentiles. Originally a Jewish Pharisee, Paul experienced a transformation that led him to rethink his stance on the Jesus question. He came to believe that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah and began to publicly proclaim the teachings of Jesus. However, to Jesus' original followers, only one who had been in Jesus' inner circle could be called an apostle. They questioned Paul's status as an apostle because he had not been an original follower of Jesus. Eventually, Paul traveled to Jerusalem. He met with Peter and James, the two leaders of the Jerusalem church. According to the writings of Paul, the group worked out an agreeable compromise and settled their disagreements with a handshake. As part of this agreement, Paul claimed his status as an apostle, but an apostle to the Gentiles. And he also agreed to take up a collection of money for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. Paul's ministry to the Gentiles could not have come at a better time. The pagan world of the Roman Empire in the first century was undergoing its own spiritual crisis. Throughout the history of the Roman Empire, pagan cults sprung up to worship the Olympian gods and goddesses. 
by the first century, these religious beliefs were losing their appeal, and people were casting about for new sources of belief. Romans began to seek internationally, turning to Egypt, Turkey, and the Middle East, seeking religions that would offer a sense of purpose and hope, a reason for living in challenging times. And into this Roman culture, so open to religious seeking, stepped the Apostle Paul. Paul offered a legitimate variant of Judaism, one that welcomed all people, women and children, the sick or the outcast, those in poverty and slaves, all groups that made up the majority population of the Roman Empire. The Gentiles that Paul encountered were often already attracted to Judaism. They had already begun to attend local synagogues and even offer sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem. The Jews called these pious Gentiles God-fearers. They worshipped the God of the Jews, but had not yet converted to Judaism, with the required circumcision and the following of all the kosher dietary restrictions. It was among these God-fearers that Paul found his most ready audience. Circumcision and the observance of religious laws were not necessary, Paul taught. Only adherence to the moral code of Judaism, in accordance with the belief that Jesus was the Messiah of the Jews, and that the Messiah Jesus opened the way to God for all people, Jews as well as Gentiles, slave and free, old and young, male and female. Being born in Tarsus, Paul understood the Gentile world. He knew how to communicate to them what phrases and terms to use to win them over. Wherever he went, Paul tailored his message to his audience. In one letter, Paul frankly tells his readers that he tried to be all things to all people, so that by all means he might reach some. He wrote with clarity and directness, in a way that appealed to his Greek readers. And so, Paul became incredibly successful at converting Gentile pagans to the new religion. Paul moved north to the Syrian city of Antioch, carrying his message about Jesus. It was in Antioch that followers of the Jesus movement were first called Christians. Originally, the title Christian or follower of Christ was derogatory. It was meant to separate traditional Jews from those who followed what they saw as the Jesus heresy. Christians, however, embraced the epithet and adopted it as their new distinctive. It was in Antioch that Paul changed the Hebrew name Yeshua, a form of the name Joshua, to the Greek Jesus. He translated the Hebrew word Mashiach, or Messiah, meaning anointed one, to the Greek Christos, or Christ. Yeshua HaMashiach of the Jews became Jesus Christ. Paul then turned west, making his way through Asia Minor into Greece and finally into the capital of the empire and the center of the Gentile world, Rome itself. As he traveled throughout the Mediterranean, Paul helped to found Jewish-Gentile gatherings 
that were eventually to be called churches. Originally, these gatherings met in the homes of individuals, usually more wealthy individuals, who opened their doors to both Jewish believers and Gentile converts. After Paul left, however, these gatherings were sometimes infiltrated by others, preaching a different message. Other apostles, perhaps from Jerusalem, followed Paul and began to teach that those who would be Christian must first convert to Judaism. They must first be circumcised. Paul responded by writing letters, sometimes angry letters of instruction, such as the one to the Galatians, sometimes pastoral and seeking reconciliation, such as the letters to the Corinthians, other times didactic and instructive, such as the letter to the Romans. It was these letters, sometimes called epistles, that became the first Christian scriptures. It is commonly assumed that early divisions within the church centered on whether or not Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. Jews who accepted Jesus as the Messiah are thought to have persecuted those who did not. And this, in fact, is not true. The split occurred among those who accepted Jesus as the Jewish Messiah Their differences were over the role of the Jewish law in the lives of the new converts. One group, representing the Jerusalem brothers, said that it was necessary for Gentiles to become Jewish and be circumcised before becoming followers of Jesus. The other group, those represented by Paul, vigorously refuted the need for circumcision among Gentile converts. Paul taught his gatherings that they need not follow kosher dietary laws or Jewish religious rituals. In order to resolve this question, James the Just convened the first apostolic council in Jerusalem in 49 AD. The conclusions reached at this council would shape Christianity for the next 2,000 years. The central question was how one became a Christian. Was it necessary for converts to first become Jewish before accepting the Jewish Messiah? The Jerusalem Council said no. Gentiles could become Christians directly. Conversion to Judaism was not necessary, nor were Gentile converts required to follow Jewish ceremonial law. Although this finding set Paul free to carry his message throughout the Gentile world, it also brought him into conflict with observant Jews. Not everyone readily accepted the conclusion of the Jerusalem Council. In fact, it would be those observant Jewish believers who would later betray Paul and Peter to Roman authorities, leading to their execution under the Emperor Nero. The Influence of Christianity The sudden expansion of Christianity in the latter part of the first century was an astonishing story of church growth. Two factors made this spread possible. The first was the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. The world inside of the Roman Empire was not at war, and so citizens, traders, tourists, and missionaries could travel freely throughout the empire. 
The second factor was the via, or the Roman roads. These roads, constructed throughout the empire, allowed for easier travel and trade. The combination of a peaceful empire, serviced by extensive travel routes, and a culture that was already open to religious seeking, meant that within one generation, the entire Mediterranean basin was hearing the news about Jesus. Gradually, the center of Christianity shifted from its inception in Jerusalem to the center of the empire, Rome. Simon Peter, the leader of the apostles during Jesus' lifetime, also came to Rome to bring Christianity to the capital. The spread of the new religion brought new converts, but it also brought new persecutions. As Roman society slowly became aware of this new religion, anxiety grew about this group that was forming in their midst. The anxiety was fanned by rumors that Christians practiced cannibalism, the communion being referred to as the eating of blood and flesh, that Christians practiced incest. They called each other brother and sister and greeted one another with a holy kiss. Rumors circulated that Christians ate babies with the blood baked into loaves of bread. And there were rumors that Christians were atheists. They rejected belief in the Roman gods. They didn't believe in the proper gods. So Roman society perceived Christianity as a cult. The historian Tacitus wrote, quote, Hated for their evil practices were the group popularly known as Christians. Their deadly superstition was beginning to spring up all kinds of sordid and shameful activities. End quote. However, the Roman suspicion of Christianity turned to full-blown persecution with a single catastrophe. The disaster was the worst fire that Rome had ever seen. It burned on for nine or ten days, nearly destroying the Eternal City. When the fire was finally extinguished, no one was ready to believe that it had all been just a terrible accident. Someone had to be responsible. Many Romans blamed the devastation on their corrupt emperor, Nero. Nero, in turn, blamed the fire on Christian arsonists. And thus began the first official persecution against Christians in Rome. Nero made a sport of arresting, torturing, and executing Christians. The historian Tacitus adds, quote, In their deaths they were made a mockery. They were covered in the skins of wild animals, torn to death by dogs, crucified, or set on fire, so that when the darkness fell they burned like torches in the night. End quote. It was during the Neronian persecution that Simon Peter and Paul were executed. Crucifixions and beheadings gave way to public executions in the Colosseum. A few years earlier, in 62 AD, James the Just had been thrown to his death from the Temple Mount by Roman soldiers. A full-scale Jewish revolt broke out the following year. Roman legions descended upon the city of Jerusalem and burned it to the ground. In 70 AD, the Jewish temple was destroyed. The Jerusalem church, under the leadership of James, had been wiped out. The Jewish people were scattered, and the homeland of Jesus 
would no longer be the homeland of Christianity. Formation of Christianity Ironically, the Roman persecution served to strengthen the new religion. One description of the persecution famously said that the blood of the martyrs was the seed for the new faith. Persecutions continued on and off for the next 200 years, sometimes as an official action of the Roman Empire and other times as a reaction against Christians in a local area. Yet Christianity was soon to turn the tables on its oppressors. No longer an obscure and persecuted cult, Christianity was about to conquer the Roman Empire, but not before it faced one more great tribulation. By the 3rd century, the Roman Empire was in a state of chaos. Barbarian invasions, economic troubles, and political infighting threatened to collapse the Roman Empire. 22 emperors had sat on the throne in the last 50 years, and 20 of them died violently. In 285 AD, the emperor Diocletian ascended and restructured the Roman Empire, splitting it into eastern and western halves. This was done in an attempt to keep his rivals from rising against him. In 303 AD, the Roman Emperor Diocletian claimed that the sun god Apollo had an angry message for him. The new Christian religion was an offense to Apollo, and Diocletian was to destroy the religion. No remnants of Christianity were to be permitted. It was a cleansing of the empire from Christianity. Witness to Diocletian's great persecution and destruction of Christian churches was a young man named Constantine, who would later write that he had opposed the oppression of Christianity. As a young boy, Flavius Valerius Constantinius learned about Christianity at his mother's knee. His father was an officer in the Roman army, who had earned a governorship from the emperor Diocletian. When Diocletian divided the empire in 293 AD, Constantine's father was made the Eastern Caesar, after Diocletian abdicated his rule, Constantine succeeded his father and fought his way to becoming the emperor of Rome. In 312 AD, the unstable power structure of the divided empire collapsed. And on the afternoon of October 27, 312, eight miles outside of Rome, the night before the battle of the Milvian Bridge, Constantine had a vision, a heavenly sign that would assure his victory the next day. Looking up into the sky, Constantine saw a vision of a Latin cross on the face of the sun. As a traditional pagan, Constantine had worshipped the gods of the Roman Empire. Now he was being confronted with a miraculous sign from the forbidden Christian religion. A voice said to him, you are to conquer in this sign. The next morning, before the battle, Constantine ordered his soldiers to mark their shields with the sign of the cross. Constantine's victory at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge enabled him to consolidate his military superiority over his rivals. 
eventually becoming the sole emperor of the Roman Empire. The battle was also a turning point for the Christian church. After his victory, Constantine supported the church financially. He built basilicas, granted privileges to clergy, such as exemption from taxes, and promoted Christians to high-ranking offices. He also returned property that had been confiscated during the great persecution of Diocletian. On February 27, 380, with the Edict of Thessalonica, the Roman Empire officially adopted Trinitarian Christianity as its state religion. And so it was that what began as an obscure Jewish sect led by an executed rebel conquered the Roman Empire. With Constantine's embrace of the Christian religion and the subsequent issuance of the Edict of Milan, the Roman persecutions were over forever. And so, with one empire led by one emperor, Constantine wanted the empire to be unified by one religion, reading one Bible under one God represented by one Christ, one faith, and one baptism. As it was in heaven, so should it be on earth with Constantine as the head of the earthly Roman Empire. All that remained was to clarify the beliefs of the new state religion. And this would prove more difficult than it might seem. First of all, there was the issue of Constantine's sincerity. Despite his ostensible conversion, Constantine retained many pagan practices. Although he firmly allied himself with Christianity he maintained a notable tolerance for paganism. Some scholars claim that the god that Constantine accepted that day at the Milvian Bridge was not Jesus, but Apollo, the sun god, Sol Invictus, the invincible sun. Constantine's coins carried the image of the sun god. Constantine demanded that Christians change their day of worship from the Hebrew Sabbath to the Roman Day of the Sun, and it remains a matter of record that Constantine would not be baptized as a Christian until he was on his deathbed. Another issue which arose to trouble the faithful was the exact nature of orthodox belief. A unified empire needed a unifying faith. Factionalism undermined the emperor. It was now time to settle orthodox belief. Although various Christian beliefs predominated across the empire, it would be the councils at Rome who would decide on what would be the orthodoxy for the new universal church. <laughs> 